With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Battleground Podcast. Uh, we have a very, very special guest today. Um, his name is Chris Cowan. Uh, Chris is one of the guys that I served with in Afghanistan. He was my second squad leader. This guy, we've been through hell and back together. Uh, lots of different firefights. Almost died multiple times. And, you know, this is this will be the 23rd episode of Battleground. And as I reflect on the last five months and how far this podcast has come, I started thinking like, man, it'd be cool to like bring guys on that have been boots on the ground front towards enemy, you know, risking their life day in and day out for this country and just talk about what that experience was like. And then maybe about what it was like to come home for them and really do everything we can to use this platform to give them uh, an opportunity to tell their story to the world. And so I think that's particularly important given that you know, only 0.4% of this country have served during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's 20 years, longest period of war in American history. And that all-volunteer force has carried a very, very heavy burden for a very long time. And now, you know, you saw the Iraq war end, you saw the debacle and the surrender in Afghanistan and, and what that has meant for our troops. But a lot of the men and women who served in those conflicts are now home and, and trying to, you know, raise a family and make a living and adjust to civilian life. Chris Cowan, welcome to the show. I love you, man. And it's it's awesome to see you. And I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Sean. Love you too, man. Uh, and I appreciate you having me on. Um, also, just want a quick, quick side note. Um, I believe today is 14 years since uh, Jeff Hall got killed in Afghanistan. One of our, one of our comrades over there. So just thinking about Jeff's family and obviously Jeff, I'll see him again someday, but um, not today, but obviously his family is, is always in my prayers. So, man, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, um, I, I mean, I wear this bracelet and I'm sure, you, I don't know if y'all can see it, but it's basically the one that we got, um, 
And we got we've gotten Afghanistan, really. It's the same bracelet. I never take it off. There are two names on there, uh, Jeremiah Cole and Jeff Hall. And, and the anniversary of Jeff Hall's death is today. And, man, we miss them every day. I I was on a radio show with uh, Wendy Bell, who's just an awesome radio host here in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, actually, she's got a national following. But she asked me to tell a story about Jeff um, or someone uh, on Memorial Day. And I told the story of how in November, like we had, you know, just for the viewers and people who are listening, like Chris and I went through a 16 month combat deployment in Afghanistan, 485 days of combat, like which is an insanely, insanely long combat tour. Um, And it was hell. I mean, just so many direct fire engagements, thousands of indirect fire engagements, man, like like our base got hit by thousands of rockets. <laughs> like it was, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and so I'm telling the story about Jeff and like towards the tail end of our deployment. And I guess we'll just jump into this now. Cause I, I initially intended to start differently, but whatever, we'll go where the conversation takes us. Um, but you know, we were doing this push on, on one of the main routes from Afghanistan to Pakistan. Cause we were just getting pounded by rockets every day. And the enemy just lived in those mountains that separated Afghanistan from Pakistan and come November. Now at this point in time in our deployment, we were supposed to go home like two in two months. So nobody really wanted to be going on this like long battalion mission in November to clear the bad guys from all the trenches from, you know, like from Afghanistan to Pakistan, which was like a 10 kilometer area. And each platoon and company and battalion was assigned a different sector. But of course, our platoon was given the most dangerous route <laughs> in almost all of Eastern Afghanistan to go point uh, and lead uh, this battalion operation, um, be the main effort, what you call in the military, the main effort in this battalion operation to clear the enemy Um from that mountainous border region. And it's funny, Chris, like as a quick side note, like I've seen people talk about like, when was the last time we've done trench warfare? And I thought like, well, Christ almighty, like we kind of did trench warfare on this mission where they were all laid in, in these trenches. But do you remember when we were, we initially started the push and all those bad guys ran out from that like offshoot Wadi system and started waving their AK 47s in the air and, you know, we were sort of in the low ground and the Afghan National Army embedded with Marines were in the high ground covering the right. high ground. And we because I think you were on point for that mission. And I was. You know, yeah. Yeah. These bad guys just run out of nowhere, which is really unlike them, because you typically don't see the enemy in Afghanistan until they they want to be seen. And, and that's typically when they're ambushing you and trying to kill you. So they're like waving around their AK-47s like crazy people. And then they just bolt. And of course, the Afghan National Army bolts after them and the Marines are like trying to get them to stop. But they end up getting baited into this like extremely complicated ambush. A bunch of Afghan National Army soldiers get shot. Um, This Marine, do you remember that Marine lieutenant who got got shot in the leg and his femoral artery retracted up into his pelvis? We couldn't get to him. He was cut off by two lines of the enemy. And like, of course, we were sent into the kill zone to get this guy out and immediately we get in there and man we just got shot up immediately right like saint saint jean got shot in the head um gardea got shot in the head all these guys that were man and machine guns and like you would open up your your humvee door i mean and it would like it was like hitting the wadi system and it was like straight up on either side and um we couldn't get to him 
And so we broke contact, evac our casualties, and Jeff Hall was like, send me out, send me up the hill with second platoon or the platoon that was right behind us, and I'll lead the main effort to get him out. And I'm like, yeah, okay, man, because anybody that knows Jeff is like, you know, he like drinks back then, drank top shelf whiskey, rode a Harley, like, yeah, send me, okay, Jeff, yeah, you want to go get him out, go ahead. So he led the main effort, fought through, fought through two, uh, two, I don't know, two groups of enemy fighters in their lines got found this Marine, uh, set up a perimeter, brought in a Black Hawk helicopter, which, by the way, two Apache helicopters had to pull off station because they got shot and they had to go back to base. So Jeff somehow gets this Black Hawk helicopter in and leads a jungle penetrator, which is like this. You know, this thing they lower from a helicopter to evac a casualty on the ground. Jeff loads him up, stops the bleeding, saves this Marine's life, comes back down the hill, slaps me on the shoulder, lights up a cigarette. And he goes, sir, don't even think me of put putting don't even think of putting me in for an award. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's Jeff <laughs> Hall, man. Like, what yeah, a crazy yeah. asshole. Yeah, he was nuts. He was nuts. I, that was uh, I remember that firefight pretty vividly. I, I do remember. The challenge was when we got into that Wadi system, it was pretty much straight up and down, and our guns would, couldn't traverse all the way up to their positions. You remember that? I do. Yeah, because you, you have like you have guns these guns on, on these turrets that you, you that you like angle down, but they 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 can only angle down so much, and and the Wadi system was so steep, like you just yeah, you got to basically heavy. get them off the T and E or something, or and then so you had like Brown using a shotgun and stuff. It was it was crazy. And Windows you know that that, out. that had to be deliberate. I mean, they had the enemy had to know that our heavy machine guns wouldn't be able to target them in that type of terrain. Yeah, it was smart. It was very smart on their part. I'll give that to them. I mean, that ambush. I mean, it was it was textbook, like all of their ambushes. But like that one was particularly sophisticated because. Not only did you, they have this like literally like a fire team element that like maybe a football field away or maybe 50 yards away where we see them and they're dressed all in black, like waving their AK-47s. And we're like uh, immediately because we had been 11 months into the deployment at this point. But immediately we were thinking, whoa, that doesn't seem right at all. Like what what mm-hmm. the hell is that? And then before we could assess the situation, the ANA had already given chase and they got pinned down but when you got back into that wadi i mean it was like several kilometers long but when we, when it was finally over chris do you remember the trench system that they had lining those that wadi system do you remember all those those dugout trenches that they were in yeah crazy yeah crazy yeah man it was uh they always pick the spots where the fight happens you know what i mean really i mean I can't think of really any times where they didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, like, Chris, this is the guy you're talking about, man. Like, this is Jeff Hall. And so two years later, um, in 2009, Jeff goes back to Afghanistan with Outlaw Platoon, different group of soldiers because a lot of the guys were wounded, moved to different duty assignments or retired or whatever, or were on their way out of the military goes back, leads a squad over there, and gets killed by a, a roadside bomb. It's like just mm-hmm. such such bullshit. And, yeah. and this is what I meant by a very, very heavy burden was carried by a small few, you know? I agree, and, yeah. And, and so, like, yeah, I didn't intend to start the show this way, but, man, 
that guy was one of a kind in this country. This country will miss him forever, you know? Yep. And I'm sure, and he leaves behind like, a, you know, Allison, who is then his wife and then his daughter, um, Audrey, right? Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, my God, I saw a picture of her on Facebook the other day. I mean, she was like yeah. 16 years old and riding a horse. It's crazy. You know, it's nuts, man. She's growing up. Yeah, she is. So. And so it's the anniversary of his death. And so we miss Jeff every day. Um, but this is the cost, you know? Yep. And so yeah. tell Chris, take me back to the beginning for you, man. Like, because it takes a very special kind of person to volunteer to serve a country that you, when you know you're going to be going to war, because if you like, just for the viewers and the listeners, you know, I don't know, you, you obviously came in before me years before I did, but, uh, September 11th, this, we were the September 11th generation. I mean, that happened when we were in our twenties and I know that's what did it for me, but what did it for you? Yeah, I I pretty much call myself a 9/11 baby, you know. I uh I hadn't I didn't have any ambitions towards the military whatsoever. Um or really law enforcement. I just wasn't really looking there, you know. I I had done some college about a year and a half of college. I kind of I dropped out. Um was trying to refigure my life and and I became a sheet metal worker and I did that for a couple of years. I enjoyed it. I liked the work. Um I think trades are excellent. And uh, I kind of maybe saw myself just kind of going that direction. And that's kind of where life would take me. And then on September 11th, I was, uh, I was young, but I was, uh, I guess, God blessed me in some ways that I was, you know, I was running a crew, uh, doing a commercial job on the, um, I don't know how far we get into this, but it's basically for like the CEO of Albertsons. Um, I mean, one of their, his residences, and it was like the top two floors of the Make of America Center in Boise, Idaho. Um, and so basically, we're, we're doing all the HVAC work um, up there Jeez. because the whole place was gutted. Uh, we're moving some materials in the morning, and then somebody came up and said, hey, there was like a, a plane like flew into some a building in like New York City. And that's like the first thing I heard. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then a little while later it's like hey there's another plane that just flew in and like like that doesn't seem right like i didn't know anything about tactics or being under attack i i didn't know anything about you know um foreign policy or what's really going i mean i was a young you know i'm 20 years old you know i mean i don't mm-hmm. not think that stuff and uh it's like something's wrong here like I, I think we're under attack you know and then obviously throughout the day, you know, not much work was done by anybody. We listened to the radio and then obviously we just, we gained more and more information over the coming days. But right then I was like, I'm going right now. I'm going to, who's, where do I go to go fight? Who's the ones that go fight, kill the enemy? That's just the first thing I wanted to do. And then obviously my family's like, whoa, whoa, okay, slow down. Let's just see, you know, what's going on here. But you know, it just ended up being, I, I, I kind of waited on it a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm going to see how this goes. And then it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was like three months later, I was raising my right hand, decided to go over there. I mean, I wanted to be an infantryman and I, I just wanted them to get me in as quick as they could. Cause I wanted to get, you know, I just wanted to get right to it. And that's basically what I did. I want, I tried for a, uh, I wanted to get a ranger contract. I wanted to get a rip contract where I could do uh, infantry training, airborne, and uh and uh ranger but they didn't have any available so i took the infantry airborne and they 
my recruiter lied to me. He's like, oh yeah, you can volunteer for RIP, you know, on airborne school. So total light. I know there's been times I think you can, but it was, that was not happening at that point in time. So yeah, yeah I did that. I went in, I, you know, did the infantry training, went in with my best friend, Alan Archuleta at the time. We both went infantry. Uh, we both went to airborne school together. And, uh, and from there, you know, I, he went out to Fort Irwin and went to 10th mountain and that's kind of how my military career started basically. What do you think? I, like, what do you think did it, Chris? I know you said it was 9-11, but do you think that, I mean, because like you, like I, I didn't come from, you know, a, a crazy military family, you know, where every generation served. I mean, I had a couple people that served in the military, my family. Um, But what do you think, what do you think did it for you? Like, was there anything uh, like deep seated in your heart that, because it sounded like you knew that that was exactly what you wanted to do at that moment. Yeah, because we had never, I had never felt like we were in a place as Americans um, since I'd been paying attention, which wasn't long. I mean, I was a few years out of being a teenager, you know what I mean? But yeah, where I felt like we were under attack and we were actually threatened as a people. And for me, it was like, that was a no brainer. Like it was a sense of duty that like, I'm able bodied, I can do this. I'm strong enough to do this. I have to do this in my country. It just wasn't a question. But before that, I just didn't really feel like I didn't see I didn't see the need really. I, I mean, and I'm not trying to talk negatively towards people that join the military when we're not in a time of war. I think it's that that's great, but just for me personally, that's well, that's where I was coming from. I just didn't see I didn't see the point in it until that happened. Mm-hmm. I like thinking back on that, like on in that era, because we're we're pretty much the same age, and I mean, you're right. We had never, I never thought in a million years growing up as insulated and free as we are in this country, like as I grew up in the eighties and the nineties and, you know, Clinton was president and there was a balanced budget for God's sake. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a time of, I feel like great prosperity, a very different Mm -hmm. time in America. And I just never thought like we could ever be attacked like that. And if you remember back during 9-11, we thought that there was a theory out there that the planes were just the first wave, like the, the opening salvo of a much larger attack. Do you remember that? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it was it was really, like, intense. I mean, I, you know, I can remember the feelings. I, I remember where I was. I, you know, I know some people, there's a whole thing about some people think they knew they were somewhere where they weren't on 9-11. I don't know if you've heard of that. But, like, I definitely was where I was. You know, I was in the Bank of America Center. I was working a job. But yeah, I, we were like, we didn't know. We're thinking like, this could be something else could be coming. You know what I mean? We didn't know what was going to happen. You know what I mean? So it was a very, I don't even, it's probably worse than uncertainty, but it was just very, you know, I can't really find the word for it, but um, things did not feel safe. So you, so, so we get attacked and you volunteer to go to war. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's just, yeah. And you said your family, your family wanted you to slow your roll a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just one of those things, you know, I gave it a few months, but it just, it was, it wasn't going away. Like it's just, I knew what I had to do. You know, it was just a sense of duty that I I felt like that I owed my country, you know, Uh, that's why I did it. And so you end up at, the 10th Mountain Division, which at the time, I mean, it became one of the most deployed units 
yeah. during, I mean, it probably was the most deployed unit in the global war on terror. And yeah, man, like, if, I guess if you wanted to deploy to war, you went to the right unit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think there's like so many probably untold stories of like what's happened with infantrymen in the war, regular army, we'll call it not special ops, not Delta, mm-hmm. not steel team sticks, which I like, I respect all of it. But I think there's a lot. I mean, there's some some shit went down. Let's just put it that way. And we were in some major, major battles, um, and and places that you know I didn't think we were going to walk out of. Um, I more than once, I, you know. I I know, I know. It, it's actually looking back on it now, Chris. You know, I can't believe I even lived through something like that. And I don't mean like survived it, but it just seems like it like it was something out of a dream like it was surreal you know like the times where you know you're leaving the wire and you know you're rolling into an ambush you just know it it's it's very hard to describe that feeling to people who haven't been there where like you know that the moment you go behind this ridge line you're gonna get attacked at some point by people with machine guns who want to kill you who don't know you like the level of anxiety and adrenaline that fl- floods into your body, just waiting for that, it's it's just impossible to explain. I mean, it just it yeah. far exceeds any feeling that I had. Like I know that you were a a, a wrestler growing up, and like uh, you know, I I wrestled for a few years as well. But like, and you're always anxiety before matches or games, but nothing like that, man. Nothing like that. No, it was crazy, but there was also. I think we were just proud of like what we, what we did over there. You know what I mean? Like the way our platoon handled ourselves. Um, you know, I think we really were one of the best platoons in the United States army at that time. I think so too, I, man. I think we had, I think we, I think we, we did things to prove that we were, you know, I really do. I, I mean, mean I, we did some, some crazy things I, over there. I agree. And I remember, you know, in training, and, and we—I don't really—we haven't really—we don't really talk about a lot about this, but we trained our asses off before we went. In fact, you know, I remember like a, a lieutenants like getting together for a beer or something when you get off late from work or whatever, thinking like like talking to each other like, oh my god, like all of our other contemporaries or or lieutenants and other battalions were like going home on leave or going on vacations or hey they knew that they were deploying and so like their their command was like letting them off at three just to spend extra time with your their family and and like in the moment i thought to myself like man those guys are so lucky you know they like they get like and and i i agreed with their commanders like oh man that's good leadership you know uh they're giving them extra time with their family because they know they're going to be away but it was that extra training that kept us alive. I think all of that extra yeah. time in the field. Do you remember? Like we were going yeah. to the field for like months at a time, while while other units were just in garrison. And I, I, mean, I mean, we just shot all the time. We shot yeah, so much. Yeah, it was like a year buildup, and it was like every week. I mean, it was like you know Sunday morning. You know, it'd be like early Monday morning at three a.m. Weapons draw two two thirty a.m. You're out to the ranges. You're out there all week till Friday night late. You get a day and a half off. Maybe you're right back into it, you know, and just that was just a normal, not counting um, some of the stuff we did, you know, right before our deployment. Um, 
it all kind of jumbles together between the two deployments. But um, I know one thing I'll tell you is I hated Colonel Toner. I hated that guy. <laughs> I was like, this bastard. He was like, tough, man. Like, he was really you know what I mean? tough. I was like, listen, dude, like I, I need a break here. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I, I, Everybody felt that way. We were all, everybody felt that way. And, and now I look back, man, and I, we, we were so lucky so lucky to have him as as our commander leading up to that deployment he, he got us you. ready the funny thing is is like here's the thing like colonel hackworth said something like uh if, if soldiers are bitching that's like things are status quo they they probably should, that's normal it's just pay attention when they stop bitching that's when you got to worry but like we never got past that but yeah there was a lot of like there's a lot of bitching about colonel toner for sure from the from the joeys you know what i mean and from every you know uh, everybody getting ready for that deployment, you know? Um, and I guess, you know, heavy's the head that wears a crown, you know what I mean? It's, leadership is tough, you know? So absolutely. And, 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 you know, even the lieutenants were like, oh man, this is rough. You know, again, especially mm-hmm. when you see, especially when you see all of your peers going home early, you know? And, and, you know, I, again, I look back and and I, now I see, you know, in our forties now, like actually it was real leadership, what he was doing. You know, and you hear all the time about like being a leader is about, you know, not you know doing the hard right, not the easy wrong. You know, the uh-huh. easy wrong back then was letting people go home early and not get prepped for the deployment. Because the reality is, Chris, is many of those other battalions, they took a I mean, we took a high, super high casualty rate, but they took higher casualty rates, you know, yeah. and and real leadership back then i mean i guess the bottom line is is that sometimes you're not going to be popular as a leader sometimes you might even be hated in the moment um but as long as you know in your heart of hearts that you're doing everything that you can to bring as many people home alive as possible Mm -hmm. i mean then you're doing the right thing you're on the right path you know and 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 that's what colonel toner did man and 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 like yeah, like uh, n- now looking back with some perspective, some some age under my belt, like we were lucky that he he worked us so hard. Yeah, it's, it's war. You know, I don't think you know war is. I mean, it, that's the ultimate proving ground. That is the ultimate. There's nothing else higher stakes that we can. I mean, what else are we gonna do? Or your your life is on the line. Your your friend's life is on the line. You know what I mean? And so to to prepare for something like that is is going to be incredibly difficult. So the preparation's got to be in some ways harder than the actual the actual missions, you know what I mean? Um yeah. which I think it, it was except for the fact that when you're actually over there in a fight, you're in the real fight, you know what I mean? So but yeah, as far as like you know, I slept more in Afghanistan than I did training, which you you know, yeah. you should. I think. You know, training yeah. training's always supposed to be harder. Always supposed to push you to the edge. You know, take everything out of you. You know what I mean? Um, and that's what he did. And he got us ready. You know? He did. Do you remember, like, I spent a lot of time talking about the training, man. But, like, when you and I get together, I hadn't thought about this in damn near 10, 15 years, Chris. Like, because, you know, anytime anyone asks me a question, it's always about war stories and combat and everything else. Um, but remember that he wanted us to run a battalion run. So a battalion, right? Like. 800 soldiers, 800 soldiers in a battalion. Mm-hmm. 
you know, plus or minus, right? Uh, plus or minus attachments. He wanted our entire battalion running a 32-minute, four-mile run. Now, you might think if you're – I know that some of you are thinking now that are watching or listening that, oh, eight-minute miles, that's not a big deal. Um, but when you're running in a battalion run and the pace is set by other people around you and you're singing cadence, like – yeah, and there are 800 people. There's always somebody that's hurt. There's always somebody that's not in good shape or just came off a profile. And profile means like an injury. And huh. and he wanted the entire battalion running a 32 minute four mile run, and that was his standard. And do you remember we did that? Like, I feel like we were doing battalion runs like every couple. <laughs> like we did a lot of them. I remember yeah, a lot, lot of, of them. Yeah, because uh, you know I this is a young NCO. Obviously I did a lot of cadence and stuff too. And, you know, preparing for those things and, and going out on those runs and stuff. But yeah. Um, yeah. That's a high standard when, you know, when you're talking about every single person getting that, hitting that standard, not 90% or 80%. We're talking everybody. That's a tough standard to meet, you know, uh, for sure. Even though back then I could, I could run for, I could go forever, man. I had no, I had such a motor back then. Uh, not, not and you were a anymore, smoker. But... You smoked back then. Yeah. I smoked in the that was the thing. That was too. the thing about being in the infantry, man. Like you have these NCOs that smoke two packs a day that will run your ass into the ground as a, as a new lieutenant and do it deliberately and all while they're hung over, you know, and you were one of those guys, man. I mean, did I learn my first, my first platoon sergeant, his name was Sergeant Robin. <laughs> Great, great freaking guy. He was like from the bayou, man. Like from the bayou where like <laughs> rough. Like they got their own rules. There's no police force. You know what I mean? It's like you handle yeah. it by the bayou laws. You know what I mean? And this guy was <laughs> tough as nails. Laws. This guy could run. He could do every, any infantry thing the guy was amazing at. He was 45 years old. He smoked two packs a day. He had Velcro running shoes. He bought them from like Walmart. He spent nine <laughs> bucks on his running shoes. And he would pound us into the ground, dude. You know, we were in our 20s. And that's, I learned that toughness from him. Like he, you know, just that not quitting. You don't ever quit. You just keep, you just go, go, go. You never stop. Like that's, that's that mentality that you have to have as like a, as a, to be a great soldier. Talk talk about that mentality. Chris, talk about that mentality a little bit more because I remember you telling me about this platoon sergeant when I was a platoon leader um, about never quitting. You know, because I'll talk, I, I will give you some, uh, give you a sense of what I mean is uh, I'll hear from young soldiers or cadets or whatever um, that will ask me like secrets of ranger school or what they have to do to pass. And like, there are, a, there are a thousand different ways I can answer that question. But like, what I typically tell them is you just can't quit. It's, ju- it's mm-hmm. just that simple. I mean, yep. and, and it sounds crazy now, but there's going to come a time where your knee is hurt you haven't slept in a week you've eaten you know you know maybe a 200 300 calories a day for the last week and you're hallucinating and you can barely you can barely put one foot in front of the other and your brain is going to tell you wow just go back to your unit it doesn't matter like you, no one's going to mm-hmm. care if you don't have your ranger if you're not a ranger no one's going to care your career is going to be fine your brain will pull out all the stops to convince you to mm-hmm. take the easy path you know? Right. And so tell me about like, as a young soldier, like what learning that lesson meant for you? 
Well, I think one thing is like had a good a good example and a good NCO that taught me a lot. But I would see, you know, not every soldier, some soldiers quit. You know what I mean? Not every soldier, you know, I, I think puts the effort in that they should. But I saw people that would give up, and I just didn't want to be that person ever. I didn't want to disappoint my leadership. I didn't want to be the person that like felt like I just quit on it. You know what I mean? So I was like, I'm never going to quit ever. Hmm. I, think I, I think I fell out of like one run of his, like where I didn't, I wasn't with him all the way to the end. Cause he could, he could break everybody off. But <laughs> that happened one time and I was like, never again. I'm never, ever, I don't care if I die. I don't care what happens. <laughs> I don't care if I'm puking while I'm running. I'm going to, I'm going to be there at the end because it's just like that. It's just that attitude that you have to have. And I think that's, you know, those things are molded and like just simple things like training, physical training. Why is it important? You know what I mean? Because like physical training isn't just keeping you physically strong, but it's your mind. It's keeping you mentally intact and strong and able to withstand, you know, you put yourself through a rigorous workout, you're running 10, 12 miles and you're, you're doing trails and you're going through bogs and you're just, you're just beat up. You just keep going and going and going. That builds that mental toughness that you need, you know, because you're going to need that when you go to war. You know what I mean? So I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of what he taught me. You know, Sergeant Robin taught me early on. Today, I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately. Energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deepwell Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who want to join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. You did two deployments to Afghanistan. So when I when I came to 2nd Battalion, 87th Infantry Regiment at the 10th Mountain Division, which was part of 3rd Brigade, uh, well, the Spartan Brigade, you know, our motto, our motto for the brigade was with your shield or on it. And so we, I, I feel like we, we bought into that. We believed it. Um, yep. And you, you had already done one deployment to Afghanistan already when you and I first met and like I tell people all the time how we first met. Like first of all, like you're probably like one of my you're probably like one of my best friends, man. But I would have never thought that we would have been friends at all. <laughs> like after no. the first time I met you, Dude, like I was just everybody, young... everybody who's ever been my friend. Like the first time they're like the first time I met you, I thought you were a total asshole. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> you got to get to know me. I'm a slow. It's like it takes time. 
you know. I still think time. you're a total asshole. And I've known you like, for a long time true. and went to war with you. So <laughs> I'm like. I kind of am sometimes. <laughs> well, so the first time we meet, we were at the Joint Readiness Training Center. And and that's in, in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And that's like most units go to the JRTC again, Joint Readiness Training Center, to prepare for what it's like to, to go to war. It's like it's basically like like very elaborate war games, you know, where you have what we call op for opposing forces, which are act like an insurgent force enemy guerrillas that you are at war with. You're on a base embedded with a tactical operations center with mission cycles, all the equipment that you need. We use a stuff called Miles Gear, which is like super sophisticated uh laser tag um and so we're down there and I, i'm a brand new lieutenant like i literally arrived at the unit and my commander like our commander at the time was like you don't even have to go like you don't even have equipment like but uh, but come hell or high water i was going because i wanted to go through that training you know with with the soldiers mm -hmm. and so i ended up going and I'm, I'm like there and as a young lieutenant like you don't really know anything and you do everything in your power as a young leader to earn the respect of your troops at least the the officers who are worth a shit that's that's where they start they're humble yep. they listen and they work hard to earn it and so but at the same time you have to carry yourself with like a sense of decorum as well so like you're trying to be I guess you're trying to be a leader that you really haven't proven yourself to be at that point. So it's a really vulnerable, tough spot. And so you're like this experienced NCO. You've already been to combat once. All I knew of you at the time were you smoked a lot of cigarettes and drank a lot of coffee. And yeah. and I remember walking up to you. I don't even know what the hell is going on, but you're standing at the entrance to our tent, which in, in Louisiana in the middle of the summer was so unbelievably hot. hot like and we didn't even have like air conditioning or anything like that just like swamp coolers or whatever and we were sweating it was it was crazy and all i walk past you and then you just you just like out of nowhere punch me as hard <laughs> as you can in the solar plexus while you and then and then you just said to me strength and honor and that was it. That was that was the whole it. And like I remember, like almost doubling over. All the soldiers were the like lesson. in the tent. Well, what was the lesson? What was the lesson? I still don't know what the lesson was. It's right. That was it. Just taking <laughs> a shot. You keep moving. Keep driving on. You know what I mean? Drinking on her. I don't know. So, I was dumb. Well, so listen. So again, so for people who like probably, who haven't served and are watching this, the army is made up of you know officers. And non-commissioned officers and the non-commissioned officers really are the ones that 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 make everything happen. They're the backbone of the military. They're your sergeants. Um, and then you have enlisted personnel and, and enlisted personnel. If they stay in long enough and they demonstrate the proper leadership potential, they're promoted. They go to school that become a sergeant like non-commissioned officer school. But you were basically an E5 back then. And that and, and I was a young second lieutenant, gold bar lieutenant you know, butter bar or whatever. And that yep. was our first interaction. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we got to know each other. Well, like, you know, when we first deployed, because I was in the, our first sergeant pulled me out of second platoon and made me take over the communications, which I hated. So doing the company RTO <laughs> stuff. And then I wanted to go to your platoon and then, um, and you did, I think, you know, we kind of got to know each other, like working out, lifting weights when you guys would be back from mission. 
but I would only go out when the commander went out, you know, and I would be the commander's gunner and I was just responsible for all the communications on the entire FOB, um, which is kind of scary. Cause like, I'm not really like a, that's not like my bread and butter when you're infantryman, but. Well, you know why you got selected for that, right? Couldn't hack it as a team leader. So they had to throw me down to, to the combo. No, it's because you were squared away. Like you, like no, yeah. no one, you don't talk about this, but like you were up for division NCO of the year, which is a huge deal. Like, right. Yeah. I didn't, I think I didn't, there's a few skills I didn't know. Um, when it came to like risk man, you know, doing like a, you know, a risk management. So uh, I don't remember what they call it. Uh, risk assessment, you know, things like that. Yeah. And an NCO does, they learn it. I didn't have formal NCO training. I never went to PLDC. I never went to, um, Enoch, I was an E5 promotable when I got out. So I was, if I would have extended out for a year or reenlisted, I was immediately going to be an E6. But I literally had the training I had was all just basically real world like war time training, you know, not which I kind of prefer that way, anyways, to be honest with you. Although there's some of it. Chris, you're glossing over like how division NCO of the year is a huge deal. A division is like 30 plus thousand people. Like, and when you say a division, it's, we're talking like the 10th mountain division. So every non-commissioned officer on that post, you know, the super squared away ones compete for division NCO of the year. And even the fact that like you were up for it is an honor. But what I'm trying to say is, is that that's why you were selected for company RTO, RTO, radio telephone operator, because it was just like, you were being, you were, you were sort of being mentored to do a career in the army. I think a lot of people thought that you were going to be a sergeant major someday. So that was just like a very important and necessary step in your career at the moment. Unfortunately for a guy like you, who is a door kicker, you know, filling radios and and working in comms equipment Mm -hmm. is about the least sexy thing on the face of the planet. But it's also, it's also a huge, huge responsibility. Cause if the comms go down, yeah, yeah. Comms go down on a fob and you're under attack, you're dead. If you're comms go out in a kill zone, you're dead. Like, and so it's a, it's an unbelievably important job that you were given. Yeah, it's, it is important. It is an important task. It's just something I didn't love. But uh, oh yeah, as far as the, the battalion stuff, so I'm trying to remember because I did a lot of boards at battalion level. And I, you know, I think I did some, I was battalion NCO of the month a few times, quarter and, and battalion NCO of the year. And then I think I went to the brigade board and I didn't, I did okay there. Um, but I, I think it was like a risk assessment. I, I didn't do well on that kind of, that kind of guy, but yeah, it was, the boards were fun to do. I like competing, you know, just stuff like that. I think it's put yourself to the test. You're doing the PT shooting, all the other things you do, land navigation. Um, you know, so yeah, it's all infantry. All infantry Wait, stuff. didn't you and I go through our EIB, our expert infantryman's badge training together too? Didn't you and I yeah. like sort unofficially pair up for that? Yeah, we um, like yeah, we I just got together. Like, on some of it, yeah, yeah, we just like got together and practiced, and then like sort of went through a lot of the stations together. And I haven't thought about this and for like until just now, but I think I think you and I were we we went through a lot of those stations as as yeah as partners. I mean, it's not a partnered thing. Like the expert infantryman's right. badge is like, yep. it's like a really, really, really difficult thing to do. Like there are like something like twenty-seven stations of like tasks, proficiency tasks, like assemble and disassemble a squad 
automatic weapon, M240 Bravo machine gun, um, you know, call for fire and place a claymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the like basically everything that you do as an infantryman, they they like it's like a it's like the Olympics of of that. Like you're being judged and there's a non-commissioned officer standing there with a clipboard making sure you do everything the right way. And mm-hmm. what is it, Chris? Like you only get to fail two like be, yeah. you have to pass you so, have to pass everything but if you fail right. twice like you're like done you don't get it yeah i think if you fail one station twice you're automatically done and then if you've had three total no-goes or failures and out of any stations you're done so you get a, there's a little bit of leeway but not much you pretty much you got to be pretty much got to be on it and then you know you have like the the 12 mile foot march with your equipment and all your, your weapon and all that stuff and your rock and then well, you got to, I think there was land nav and you got to uh, qualify expert with a rifle. That's, that's mm-hmm. the idea. Man. Uh, so, so it's, it's very, it's difficult. And there are a lot of hell of a lot of infantry soldiers that were better than me. I'll tell you what, that, that, that didn't get their EIB then, and maybe even didn't get it later because, yeah. you know, you have to wait for the training to come around too. Like it, it's EIB training. It's not like they have it on a regular basis or you can always do it. It's like, you know, every couple of years, it'll be like, hey, you can train to get your EIB here. Like, come on out if you want it. If not, you don't have to do it. You know, it wasn't even mandatory. But I think you and I, God, we went through all of that stuff. And I think you and I both got our EIB. I know I did, but I think you did too, yeah. right? I got, yep, I got crazy. Well. So, crazy. Well, it was my my first time I did it. I think I was a private and I didn't make it. I, you know, I didn't get it. And so it's something I wanted before I got out of the army. I just, it was a big deal. It was something I wanted to get. So I'm glad I you can definitely get tripped up. Like it's, you know what I mean? They're, yes. You know, great soldiers don't get it, you know, just for some little one thing, you know, it's, yeah, it, it can, it's, it's nasty. You really got so mu- And you might get a grader that just hates you, you know, yeah. that just wants to yeah. see you fail. So there are like a lot of variables that make it so yep. difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree. And especially, and also like guys that you're competing with, because like, if you're, you know, you, you can start getting promoted past captain or, and even as E5 to E6, <laughs> you do these boards and, you know, guys that have their EIB get, that's like a, that's, you get more points or however, however it is for you guys for non-commissioned officers. But I mean, it's good for your career to get it right. And right. Yeah. I think especially if you're, if I was a stay in once you start hitting E7, you know, sergeant first class, like you're an infantryman, like you need an EIB, you know, a, a ranger tab, I think. Um, I, I think the one thing about ranger school was, so I obviously never went to ranger school. This somewhere I probably would have went had I stayed in, but uh, I went to straight to Arslick, which is which is like you know, the grad school for ranger school. <laughs> like, yeah, the- no, and you're probably going to get some ranger hate on this because you know I never went to ranger school, but. A lot, a lot of, you know, our stick is mostly Rangers that go through that training. It's mostly yes, Rangers. It's, it's like, NFL. look, look, I, I went to Ranger school. I graduated Ranger school. It sucked. It's draconian. Like it's, it's really difficult, but a lot of the advanced skills in the next phase of that training, it, it's our slick. It's yeah. like, what, what is, what is the acronym for? God, it's been so long. Like reconnaissance, surveillance, leadership course. Yep. Reconnaissance, surveillance, leadership course. Like that's like yep. the grad, what, what people refer to in the army. It's like the grad school for ranger school, but you went to that and not ranger school, which is crazy to right. me. And you graduated. Yeah. So I went to that, but I will tell you, like for anybody who's going to go in the military, like go to ranger school first. It's like, why would you go to, it's just one of those things where 
Because you're going to see the hell they put these these guys through when they're going to ranger school. You don't want to see that first. You just need to just go be there, I think. You know what I mean? Because they treated us like really good. It was, a, it was a gentleman's course. So we get there. I mean, they're RIs who are training us, but they're all RIs who have a lot of, like, former Lurse D, the long-range um, reconnaissance, like the divisional detached. Like, you, they used to do it at the division level. Then they, they brought it to the brigade level, like, when, uh, when we were in. Um, but those are the guys running it, but we were treated differently. Like, like, oh, you guys don't need to wait in line. They're just yelling at all the, you know what I mean? Like all the, all the Ranger students and stuff. And we're just kind of like, yeah, just hanging out, eating lunch. But like, but it was hard in the way that, um, it was a gentleman's course, but it was like 34 days. Um, it was very, um, mentally demanding. Like you, you had like a few days to learn, like, I was like 400 pieces of equipment, like artillery, like. Are you just you name it like you got to name all this stuff and like they just flash a picture up it could be any angle of a tank or something and like you got like three seconds and you got to get the answer if you don't pass that test you fail the school and if you don't pass the land nav the land nav is a star course so that's like basically you get your next point when you get to that point and a lot of these points are five to seven kilometers away you can't dead reckon you can't go through a straight line you got to use the high ground you get in a low ground at Benning, like you're in trouble. Like you're just you're gonna be beaten brush all day. You're just gonna Oh my god. But, I, so the I, that's first exactly time we right. did that, the first time we did it, one guy passed one guy passed line out in our whole class. It was like a it was like a force recon guy. He like ran through the course. The guy was like a machine. Everybody <laughs> else failed. He was the only one that made it. And the second time around, you know, some of us passed, but it was you know, they said about every class it's about a 40, 40 to forty five percent failure rate, and that's with only a few of us didn't have ranger tabs. Most every single person in there was tabbed or SF. And uh, yeah, the class before mine, they had said they're eighty percent failed, eighty percent failure rate. And this is mostly this is mostly guys with ranger tabs. So this isn't, you know. So that's probably the, the hardest thing I did in the army was go through Arslick. That was kind of my. I would say that land nav course was one of the toughest things I ever did in my life. That was really difficult. Oh my god, the land nav and the star course at Benning is—it's uh, just brutal. When you're talking about yeah. when you're saying like, first of all, like I sprinted the entire last half of the Ranger School land nav course uh, just because you're timed. You know, you have to get your points yeah. in a certain amount of time, and like you don't want to get like I don't, I don't remember how many points you had to get, but you don't want to get like four of five points and then cross the finish line. Or get five of five points and cross the finish line or get back to base like even 30 seconds late. doesn't matter. You're a no-go. Yep, you're done. And when you talk about like you can't get trapped in the low ground, I mean, the brush is so thick that you'll have th- plant, you know, thorns mm-hmm. scratch in your face and everything else. Like and when you talk about dead wrecking, you're talking about like you have a point here and a point here. You can't go from point A to point B straight. No. So no. you're talking about like – using the high ground it means yep. looking looking at a map and saying okay here's my point right but i also right. know that there's a ma- there's a there's a hot there's high ground there's a hill right here so yep. i'm gonna i'm gonna like use my protractor and and my compass and plot an azimuth from where i am right now to that hill and i'm gonna get there and then mm-hmm. i'm gonna use that hill to plot an azimuth down yeah. to uh, my protractor right. and plotted azimuth down to my point and terrain associate get to that point and then when you get to that point it's like they're hanging on these little trees right in these little metal boxes and there's like it's like the point name would be like you know j6 or whatever like or something like that i don't know right and you get the next the next point is in there so you start from there to the next one it's brutal it's brutal but- 
the good thing about the Arslik one was they actually had points that weren't like you weren't looking for a coffee can. There'd actually be like an RI there and a truck or something. So like, but the points were they were far, and it was like a seven hour time limit. It's a day to night or a night to day movement. And yeah, like you said, it's basically all terrain association and like using backstops. The big thing I tell people in land nav when I was into this stuff, it's like use proper backstops. Know if there's a creek going through there. If you hit that creek, you're not at your point, something's wrong. You know what I mean? You've hit your backstop, you know what I mean? Or whatever that may be. If it's a road, if it's anything like that, you know, but, but yeah. And then, it was a, it was and a then Chris, course. Chris. Yeah. So what, what we're talking about is just during the day, you have to do it at night too. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, I, you get like half of it's at night, half is day. Yeah. I mean, I, again, when I talk about looking back at those experiences and thinking it's surreal, like. I do because like I'll get lost using my Google maps, like on some back road. And I'm like, how the hell did I pass the Ranger nav or the, yeah. the Ranger land nav course, but I'm getting lost on my way to Walmart. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. so weird, man. Like Afghanistan, the roads, like on the maps, like the, it, the map doesn't help that much. Just they're all different roads. It's they make <laughs> the roads change over time. You know what I mean? Um, those are like what yeah. old, there are no roads. There are no yeah. roads. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, crazy it was, over there. Yeah, so like, yeah, what's crazy? You go to Arslick, and then you know we went through all this hardcore training, which we talked a lot about. We should really divide this episode into two. It should have you back, and we'll talk about we're talking about the training and the lead up now, um, and we really talk about the deployment to Afghanistan next. We've already been doing this for fifty minutes. Um, yeah, it's fine. but so we get. So we know we're going to Afghanistan. Like, you know, I meet you in 2005. We do like a year's worth of train up. We know we're going to Afghanistan in 2006. And, you know, we started to have an intel um, trickle in from the border. But honestly, Chris, it was a joke. Do you remember? Like, we were hardly getting anything. And, you know, we you had already been in Afghanistan. What I mean, I don't even want to, I don't want to gloss over that. I, actually, I'm going to stop because I want to start with your first deployment to Afghanistan, you went, you went to Afghanistan in 2004, right? Yeah, it was, uh, 2003 to 2004. Um, it was, let me think it was August, uh, 2003, May, 2004. when we came back. So, yeah. So you come back in 2004, right? Um, and, and that deployment for you, I don't, I, you know, what was, this is two years after nine 11. And by the way, after you volunteer to serve the country, your, your boots on the ground in Afghanistan, like less than, less than two years later, after you volunteer to serve, you're in combat, you're at war looking for bin Laden. I mean, that's always part of the mission. And, um, where were you on your first deployment? If, if memory serves, it was like uh, Gosney. Yeah. So that was a lot of places. It was a weird deployment. It wasn't like our, our deployment where we had just our area of operation. We were in Tactica. We were in Pernell Valley. You know what I mean? Um, this one was weird. We did, uh, we started out, my platoon started out in Barry Cow, which is the most northern place where we had U.S. forces. Uh, we had one platoon there. Um, and we were there with, there was like a few CIA guys there. And it was weird, man. They were doing stuff like people are meeting them and like, like a tent and stuff and they're like got a backpack of money and it was crazy i'm like a private I'm like what the hell is going on this is crazy like 
you know, and uh, and it was just so cool. I'm like talking to those guys. I'm like, we're like, yeah, I was like Delta, and then I went. And, like, they have like one name, right? Like, like, oh, yeah. man, my name's Chester. Like, we're yeah, it's like Chester. Roger. Like, it's like you know what yeah, I mean. It's yeah. just like some. I'm like, all right, man. I'm not gonna ask you more questions. I'll leave you alone. But uh, <laughs> but they helped us out a lot. They were good. They were good guys. The people we were there. I mean, we were just as young. You know, I'm a young private. I don't know anything. You know what I mean? So um, they were good dudes. Um, a few times when like we took some a couple like rockets that didn't really land that close, like they'd hop up on the towers with us and like hit some flares and stuff, with, you know. So like yeah, they were they were nice guys, you know what I mean? Um but uh yeah, so we we were there for a little while, then we, we went to like Bagram where we did we did a QRF for the country, which was weird. It was like we did this for like a month where we were QRF. Like we had one was like called a Karzai extraction. If you had to take uh the, the president of Afghanistan like was getting attacked and like we have to go in and save him and like Chinooks and stuff. So we do all these training missions. We had one was like a vehicle takedown. I think we called it JLo or something. And uh, we would train this, you know, we would like do all the stuff like, yeah. And I would have like the AT4. So I'm like, I'm the one who's going to like take this thing out or a law. And uh, we actually did one that, hey, this is real. Like we got one. We got to be like, it was like, I'm like, oh my God, we're going to do this. Like I'm going to take out a vehicle, I think. You know what I mean? Like we get on the Chinooks or we get out there. I'm like, oh, my, this is it. This is it. Like, go, go, get in the road again. I got the wall. Like, I'm ready to go. And like, all right, index. We're all set. It was, it was just a training run. I was like, what? It was just a training run. We did, but in, in country. That's crazy. That's kind of nuts, right? Yeah, I swear, yes. dude. It was, yeah. And they didn't tell weird. you that it was just training? No. I mean, my, that sounds, that that's, that's crazy. I mean, what if you landed yeah. on HLZ and there was like, you yeah, know, like white, some family white coming down. Yeah. yeah, and you I, like shoot. <laughs> I don't know, man, but I'm telling you that happened, dude. Hell? Like, it, I believe you. I believe you. Uh, you I, know I, what? It, I'm pretty sure I, because my memory's fuzzy. I know we're on the bird. I think we actually went up and landed, and we set up. But that, that's mean, an interesting point because you know that was a long time ago. But yes, it was. It was kind of crazy. You know, I mean, look, Chris, things change all the time. Like, like when we were in Afghanistan, um, we did like the what we call O, H and I fires, basically harassment and interdiction artillery fire. So we would have these target reference points and we'd fire like at random every single night. And by the way, multiple times a day, but every single night, random but historical ambush sites just no eyes on our target um yeah just pound those sites with artillery and we call that harassment and interdiction because we just wanted right. to keep the enemy guessing we never wanted the enemy to you know you know plot in an ambush there or something or think twice right. before they did it right well you don't do that shit anymore you go to yeah. you, you, you know but like if you did that then. stuff to yeah. yeah, it happened. Yeah. So like what I'm saying is, is like, yeah, things change. Our tactics, techniques and procedures change all the time. And so I but here's what here's what I'm asking Here's why I, I, I don't want to gloss over your first deployment, because like you and I got real close, I think, in Garrison, did lots of things together. Um, and you told me about like your first experience with death on that first deployment. Right. And you you got blown up as well, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I didn't, I mean, I didn't take any shrapnel, but I thought I was dead. Yeah. So, um, yeah, first deployment for us, it was, you know, to kind of gloss it over when we were up in that furthest North place, Barry Cow, where we, it was just our platoon. We did have a, um, we had an OP 
there's like a big hill op on top it took about an hour to get there um on foot and uh my buddy they got attacked up there There was like a squad plus size element um enemy attacking the op and they're pounding it and so we got our qrf together and so we get out and i'm a private you know what i mean and like just like this you know one of the staff sergeants was like count you're on point go it's like <laughs> what <laughs> you're, you're, <laughs> like, yeah. me all right, I'm a private, but sure, I'll be point. You know, I just kind of, mm. I thought like an NCO would be leading the charge on that one. But um, yeah, I, I took us up the mountain. Uh, we got up there. Um, we got shot at on the ridgeline. Uh, we we didn't return fire because there, there was concern about um, where we were, and we didn't want to get in a crossfire situation with our guys on the OP. Uh, but basically what they ended up getting, we got an A-10 on station, and they basically were doing these strafing runs. They did one so close to us. They called it Danger Close Strafing Run. I'm telling you, man, it's the scariest, one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. It's a wall of fire just coming at us. It was way, way too close. It's just coming in. And I had my head behind a rock like this big, and I was just screaming at the top of my lungs, just like, and it was, I mean, it was so close to us. I mean, they got on, we had the JTAC and on the other, like, ah, way too close. It was just nuts. You know what I mean? Um, we get through that firefight. We get, Ultimately, we bounced around. We go to Jalalabad for a while, and that was a terrible place to be. It was just horrific. We were just doing like security. That's all we did. It was a really boring, terrible time. And then we did. Uh, we went to Ghazni, and then we were doing some more missions there in Ghazni. That's where I got blown up. Was um, in Ghazni. The uh, they buried like a 107 millimeter rocket, actually two of them on the side of a roadway. And what had happened was I had gone to to. Uh, I had gone to Bagram to do an R and R, and so we they we got to go to Doha, Qatar, or whatever for like three days and like have some drinks or whatever. <laughs> that's and, uh, nuts. <laughs> that's actually a whole other story because I almost got like court martialed there. I like pretty much like <laughs> as a whole other thing. You got to tell me what happened. You have to tell me okay. if you can. If you can, I, I absolutely can. So we go to Doha, right? And you're young. It's like, dude, let's. We want to have some drinks, right? Like we've been Ex- explain explain to explain to people like where Doha is and what the process is. Oh, just Doha, like it's in Qatar, Qatar, which is like a country in the Middle East, and um, there was, you know, we had a military base there, and that was a place where you could go on the, what they call a, a rest and relaxation for three or four days. But since uh, we were over, we got extended on our deployment from an original six month deployment to nine months. So some of our guys, they were filtering guys through to get them like, you know, three, four days off and, you know, out of country, you know? So we get there and, uh, I think it was like, I don't know, it was probably the first or second. I think it was like the second day we were there and you take the bus into, you know, into like the city and there's a huge mall and stuff. It's very rich country, you know, all oil money and stuff like that. And so we're really going on the moon stuff. I'm buying Cuban cigars and all these things. And, uh, <laughs> and so we stopped at one of the, you know, it was like, they, you know, had one of the bars in the mall. So we just kind of hold up there and we had, you know, we probably had seven, eight drinks, you know, nothing got crazy. We were having drinks. We get isn't, back on the, isn't Cutter a dry country though? Yeah, it is. But they have, it's just like anything else. When there's foreigners coming in, they have like places where you can go. They still have bars and things like that. They, Interesting. They still sell alcohol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never been. I've never been there. I've never been there. Yeah. So like the Air Force people, they, they're totally like, oh yeah, we do it all the time. We're pilots and we do this stuff. And it's like, but for us, we're up <laughs> under different rules. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. Like we're under like yeah. the infantry. Like you're lucky you're even on an Air Force base, you piece of I shit. Know. You know what I mean? Like don't even. 
Don't even look me in the face. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, for Sorry. infantry people, what do you smoke? Uh, it's about two miles down that way. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. Um, so we get on the bus and some idiot doesn't show up. He's not on the bus. And like the MPs are like, what the hell is going on? So now they're looking for this guy. And we're like sitting there for hours. Eventually, they find this guy, bring him back. He's been drinking. He, the guy's like gone. He's like almost passed out or something. They bring <laughs> us all, and they this MP gets on the bus and like he's like, "Has anybody been drinking? We're gonna breathalyze everybody." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" Like what? Like ah, that's very cool. Cool, 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 cool. I'm like, I think I just gotten like my E4. I just became a specialist. I'm like, oh, that's done. So I'm going down to E1 now. This will be a, you know. Well, no, explain to explain to people explain to people why like you're not allowed to drink in country. It's 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 a violation of what right like general order number one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess were you allowed were you allowed to drink when you were there? You were allowed to drink on the post. You had like three beer tickets a day, which for an infantryman is an absolute joke. It's not nearly enough beers <laughs> for us. So, it, we get kind of a joke. You know, you're going to send guys yeah. home. Like you're going to send guys over there for rest and relaxation and only yeah. like coming from a war zone. They only have yeah. like three light beers. Yeah. You know, no, like, in, in, like in world war two, as tough as those, they, as those guys had it. These guys went through hell on, on, in the European front. At least they were rotating back to London where they could drink and go to bars and all this other stuff. And they're sending you to yeah. Qatar. Oh my God. Yeah. So we, Long story short, I'm like, I was like, dude, they're good. We're smoked. Like, and the guy's like, listen, if you had drinks, just tell me now and like, we'll deal with it. But you got to be honest with me. So, I was, you know, like, okay, yeah, I had, you know what I mean? Eh, bad idea. So they like, they're like, you're going for the, you know, like, he's like, you're going for the Sergeant Major of State Comp tomorrow at 0900 out. I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm in so much trouble. And then we sit there for a while and like for like an hour and these guys talk just three times and they're like, all right, you're all set. Just don't do it again. And we're like, seriously? Like, yeah, you can go. And they just let us go. And that was it. Just like well, scared the hell out of us and then just let us go. And that was it. Nothing else It happened. wasn't even, Yeah, you know, this is what frustrates me about the army sometimes. Like one jackass yeah. does something stupid and then the commanders basically say, okay, now everybody can't do it. Or now everybody gets in trouble. Right. Yeah. You know? That's what's. That's what's tough about the infantry world. You know what I mean? Um, it was always like that. Like when we got to Kyrgyzstan or whatever, like everybody in the Air Force could like drink and stuff. Or like, yeah, I know. Not us. <laughs> like, I mean, nah, it's, army it, people. It's so it's so crazy. You talk about like you know because like now like uh, you know Air Force, Army, Marines, like all these jokes, but there but there really is a difference. Like those like. The, yeah. And in many cases, like, you know, they, they have pilots that need to have their rest and they need to get X numbers hours of sleep. And like, it's like they have a whole different mission set, but they're sleeping. I mean, like, I think the Air Force and I don't think that this is I think this is true. They get paid substandard housing pay to live in army bases and I've heard infantry that. housing. Infantry housing is a whole nother thing. It's, it's yeah. like, like yeah, we, I, I believe it, too. <laughs> And so, yes, so so do I, so do I, but so you get, so do you go to Qatar before or after you got blown up? It was before actually. So what ended up happening is we get back from that and apparently we had had, um, there was like some village elders in some village. It was in the Ghazni province and 
we go out one day, just like our squad. It wasn't many, but we didn't have up on the vehicles then. It wasn't like, you know, we had a couple of Kevlar blankets over the side of the truck. You know what I mean? And uh, we go out to the spot. I'm like, oh, okay, we're going out here. It's like, we're going to meet with some elders out here at this village. We get there and I noticed there was like nobody in like the town square, which I'm like, okay. I'm like, huh, okay. There's like nobody here, which is kind of weird, right? You know what I mean? Because in yeah. Afghanistan, it just seems like when you're in a village, like there's just people around. Someone's... And so we start to get out of the Humvee. It's in one of those cargo ones where it's got the like little tailgate thing. And I was like, had my foot on top of the tailgate. I was stepping over the edge, just about to get out when just boosh, it just blew up. 107 millimeter rocket. Um, there was a guy standing like two feet from it. There was another guy standing right next to it, about a foot from him. And then I was about probably seven or eight feet away, standing on top of the trailer, way up in the air, which is like a bad place to be with something exploding like that. And it just completely just knocked me just straight back. And I thought I was dead. I literally, I thought like, there's no way. And I, I remember checking my body to see like, am I intact? And I was, I was like, I mean, it rung my bell. I think I got a, pretty good concussion from it, but never, I never got medically checked out or anything like that. They never had me checked out, but, uh, um, I mean, you should, you should have been awarded a purple heart for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, because clearly, clearly like had at least a traumatic brain injury, which, you know, yeah. years later, even after we were there, it was, that wasn't even a thing. Traumatic brain yeah. injury wasn't even an acronym when we were in Afghanistan, but it is now. Well, now they call it the same thing as PTSD. Like if you try to do a claim, you know, traumatic brain injury or PTSD, they'll just lump them all together. They don't even, doesn't even matter for the VA. But, uh, yeah, so. What happened to those guys that were right next to the 107? So the guy right next to him, he, I mean, he got his bell rung, you know. Pull him out of there. You know, just grab him by the back of the, the vest, pull him out of there, because we don't know what the hell is going on. If there's anything else, we get a perimeter going. Um, the guy that was, had been right next to me, he had a, a like a bottle of water in his pocket. It exploded. Just the overpressure exploded the water in his pocket. I almost thought that was crazy. Completely just boosh, just blew it up. But yeah, that was basically it. And obviously, like clearly, the villagers like knew that there was an IED there. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they knew that. Yeah. But basically, EOD when the EOD looked at it, they basically determined that that had it just it was buried just a little bit too deeply on that the side of the road here and this kind of a little bit of a hill or how it kind of you know the, the grade kind of filters down like that and that's what saved us is because it, a lot of that blast went up more rather than into us and that's why you know because if not I, i'd be dead i mean you're like eight feet from 107 dude you're like that ain't good <laughs> that's that's gonna rip you apart you know it's a huge rocket huge you know, and there's two of them, so one didn't even go off. So if they both gone off, then it's like, I mean, I just I don't think you're walking away from that thing. I mean, yeah, one or seven, one or seven millimeter rockets, basically like this this big, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like a big yeah. rocket, 107 Huge. millimeters round. I mean, it's it's a big, Huge. you know, it's no joke. Yeah, yeah, and those are what so, they yeah. were firing at us, like the vast majority of the time. And yeah, they make big explosions yeah that's it's crazy that you that do you survive that everyone survived that yeah everybody survived it yeah no but it was just kind of an you know and i yeah i just didn't know we you know that we'd been there before i think we'd been there a couple times just one of those things you know that's what the enemy looks for they see you stop hey they park right there every time you know what i mean that they're looking they're always watching it even our first deployment we didn't have 
I was only in one direct fire engagement, and then they lobbed a few rockets here or there. Nothing really that close. Not like it when our not in our deployment. And uh, a lot of the stuff we did was like we would go after like high value, medium value targets. Like we would go try to find people that worked for intelligence or under the Taliban and like things like that. That we spent a lot of time doing that. Like when we were in Ghazni. And we were successful in getting people like on, you know, the, the most wanted list and, you know, not missions that like probably, you know, like SEALs or Delta is going to take on, not the high, you know, but you're just going after people that probably have Intel medium value to high value targets. Uh, you know, we would just, we'd scoop them up all the time. So. That's crazy, man. And then you get, so you get back in 2005, 2004. Yeah, like uh, yeah, uh, May two thousand four. Yep. Yeah, so May two thousand four, and then there's a, there has to be a change of command somewhere after that, right? Uh, of two eight because you're in two eight seven, second battalion, eighty seventh infantry regiment at the time, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So there, when was the change of command after you got back? That had to happen. Uh, the battalion change of command. Battalion, it, yeah, it wasn't long after, and so uh, we had Colonel Pascal was our battalion commander and then colonel toner took over not long after we got back i mean it, it you know maybe i don't know if it's two or three months it was right in that time frame though just right after we got back yeah okay then, so yeah two or three two or three months and this is 2004 halfway through it's probably like change command july august of 2004 and colonel toner didn't waste any time you know he ramped up and you guys started training for the 2006 deployment right away right yeah Yeah. i mean and that's this is what i'm talking about like this volunteer force you know this is just your story but multiply that by a thousand ten thousand and that's the experience of people who are in the combat arms you know yeah and and force com forces command in the army where you didn't even get a year off and you were already training to go back to war you know no. and you live you live out of your rucksack man you live out of a rucksack if people want to know what it's like to be an infantryman just try thinking about being cold and wet for weeks at a time imagine being cold and wet for two weeks and there's nothing you can do to get warm sleeping in puddles constant rain you can't get dry your feet are falling apart because your feet are just soaked. You don't have enough pairs of socks. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's, it's rough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just training is rough. You know what I mean? Let alone like actually going to war, you know? So, and this yeah. is why I think to your point earlier, when you said, you know, there are lots of, lots of amazing stories, by the way, of Navy SEALs and special forces guys, like they had a, a unique mission set. And some of those guys were on once in a lifetime missions, you know, there's no question yeah. about it, but like yeah, there, there is, or there are not enough stories of light infantry or just infantry guys in combat over, over these 20 years of war, not enough. And these are the guys yeah. that are, I mean, no joke. You talk about like, you're in a fighting position, getting rained on, you're freezing cold. You're probably hungry. You know, eating MREs, if you're lucky, getting shot at day in and day out. There's no, you know, because a lot of these, a lot of the special forces guys, and again, this isn't like a knock on any of them. This, yeah. their, their mission, their mission set was very different than ours, different. but different. they would, they would leave. They'd, they'd go on a, a kinetic mission, like mm-hmm. t- a high value target mission, or 
if you're a Green Beret, you're, you know, sometimes you go on counterterror missions and stuff like that, but like your mission is foreign internal defense. So you've got a small team stra- training indigenous forces, very different mission set, uh, than, than conventional infantry, you know, yeah. uh, in, in conventional in- infantry, you're just freezing, starving, getting your ass shot off every day and you never leave. You rare, you know, you don't no. leave. You don't. No. And same with the train up. I mean, when you're the train up, it's the same thing. You know what I mean? It, you know, we did it. Uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. We did that. I think that was before. Yeah, that was before, before I got there. Was that right before you got there? Or yes. Was that... When you guys, when you guys, you went to Fort Knox to do the uh, a train up there. That was. Oh, before it was I got terrible. There. It yeah, rained yeah. like every day, every single day, dude. We were just, you know, you're out there for eleven days. You're sleeping an hour a day, and they're putting us up against strikers. And the whole point was is for us to fail. Like they just would. Yeah, you got to go six clicks. You got, you know what I mean? We're just going, going, going. And the only time you slept is when they download your miles gear. They harvest all the data from the battles. And you sleep for like an hour, hour and a half. You smoke a bunch of cigarettes, drink tons of coffee, and then you just keep going. And, like, you're just cold and wet, and you just live like that for two weeks. And then you get back, you got a day and a half off, and you do it all over again. And we did. We spent, like, 47 days in the field. The guys that were down there, the, the subject matter experts, you know, they were most of them were tabbed. They had ranger tabs. They were, you know, they were – and they were like, guys, you're getting like, you get basically are doing ranger school and you're not getting any credit for it. Like basically what they said. Um, we had a couple of guys that got done with ranger school and they were like, they like wanted to go back to ranger school. They just finished and they like <laughs> sent them there. Like, they were like, I'd rather go back to ranger school right now. This is terrible. Like, and I, I don't know. I, I don't have any experience. I think ranger school is incredibly difficult. Anybody who's got to, who has a ranger tab has got a lot of respect for me because I know that's a really, really tough school. So I'm not trying to knock. I'm not saying it was hard. I'm saying it did suck really bad though. And I, I would have rather have probably just been in ranger school working on getting a ranger tab than just this train up for uh, us to light infantry against a striker. You know what I mean? But I mean, at least you get something to show for it when you graduate, <laughs> you know, exactly. you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, yeah, I went to Fort Knox once for just, so I could be abused for two months. You know what I mean? Like, mm. but yeah, it was a good time. You know, I think the only, you know, I probably had one, uh, I don't know if I have something, one funny story about the first first sergeant I had. Um, did you ever tell you that story? I don't know. First sergeant Tusi, we called him Tusi. It, it was like a long, he was Samoan, he had a very, very long last name. I can't even say it right now, but it's like Tusi is what we all called him. That's what he had, a, he had like a, he had like a super high voice, right? You know, he was like super, <laughs> he, huge guy, huge guy. Well, he didn't like me a lot because like I got in a fight. So I got in a fight one time, like in, you know, Watertown. It was just my battle buddies left me and I should have went with them. These guys tried to fight me. It was like three guys. I, I got into it with them. The cops got there. I had knocked one of these guys down and, you know, one of these, I just, I got hit with like disorderly conduct or whatever, but, um, long and short of it. So, the, you know, the first sergeant was, I was kind of like on his radar, but I was like a good, it just was like a really unfortunate circumstance. Like, you know, being a soldier and like if you're in somewhere like Watertown and stuff, like you got to stay. You know, you got to you need to have your friends with you. But long and short of it was, um, we were doing some inspections after that, and uh, for like all of our gear and stuff. My cat's yelling at me. Hold on, <laughs> it's okay. We were doing some inspections, and uh, cat's like, "Don't, don't tell the story. Don't do it." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gotta say hi. Say hi. 
This is my emotional support animal. You got to get down, this dude. Is your, where's its jacket? He should have a he should have a jacket on that says service animal. We just got that cat like two months ago. It wakes us up at like three in the morning all the time. It's terrible. Great. But uh, great. yeah, so he's expecting all year. And we got our TA50. It's like the old TA50, you know what I mean? Like with the canteen pouches and all that stuff. Yeah, the load-bearing, the yeah, load-bearing the suspenders LV, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and he's like looking, and my stuff was clean. I cleaned it all. It was, everything was fine. And he was like, you know, he's like looking at it like, this clean. And I'm like, yes, it did. Like, but I, I can't like, yes, for sergeant. He's like, and that's a Friday night. And we were like wanting to go out that night. And he was like, you're going to clean this. You know, whatever. He's, he goes, and I was like, yes, for sergeant. So me and he did the same thing to my buddy, Boris. We were roommates. And so we get back to our room. We just throw our gear against the, the we're like, ah, we're just mad. We went out all night. We got back like two in the morning. We wake up at like eight. And I'm like, oh, crap. We got it. We didn't clean our gear last night. So I just ran, we just got like, grabbed our gear, ran down to the first sergeant's office because we had to be there by like 8.30. And he, he looks at, he's looking at my gear. He's like, did you clean this? And I was like, uh, yes, for sergeant. And he was like, <laughs> I'm like, no, not really. But, and he was like, what did you do to it? And I was like, uh, I couldn't think. My head was foggy. And I was like, I threw it in the, the washer, which it literally says like, do not put TA-50 in the washer. Like, you, you yeah. cannot do it. And he's like, that's what those are for. Good job. And like, that was it. And then he just gave me my stuff back and I was all set. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I don't know how I got through that one. That was pretty stupid of me. Like, but yeah. And then the guy who actually cleaned his stuff all night, he had to clean his stuff like all day. He kept bringing it back down and just kept getting failed. So, <laughs> go figure. So. That is, um, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing story. Oh my God. That's that's like every I mean every soldier has stories like that man. Yeah. You know, that's it's like uh, a funny weird story from, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> weird stuff. Yeah, Chris, we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes now and I feel like we could talk for probably another 3 hours. So I think what we're going to do is release this in two parts. So the first part of the episode will be, you know, talking about why you joined the military and and the train up and your first deployment. Um, and the second part, which we'll record, uh, you know, either later today or a couple days from now, uh, we'll talk about our deployment to Afghanistan and all of a bunch of war stories, and then and then what you're doing now as a law enforcement officer. And so. Man, I, I'm grateful for the time that you've given me today, Chris. Thank you. And um, I'm, I'm so psyched to, to record this this second episode. Sounds good. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate All it. All right, brother. We'll, we'll talk to you soon, okay? See you soon. Thank you. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. 
Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.